Hello, everybody, watchers, listeners, supporters of all kinds. Welcome to another episode of the Weekend Ramble on the Ashes to Awesome podcast. I'm your host, Chuck LaFlange. With me in virtual studio halfway around the world is Lisa. How are you doing today, Lisa? I'm very good, Chuck. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm great. Just loving life here in Thailand. It is 1230 in the morning, and it's still 30 degrees, <laughs> so I, I'm sweating away. Um, with us, we have a special guest today, Sonia Johnson. Um, Sonia is a content creator, recovering content creator on Facebook and lives in Florida. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for having me today. I think it's so cool how we can sit and have this conversation all over the world. We're in different places, and yet here we are having this talk. So I'm glad okay. to be here. Thank God for technology, right? So that's not often we say that, I guess, but you know, sometimes it is. Um, hey, Sonia, before we get into it, actually, yep. before we get into it, um, as I'm not running my usual intros and stuff, I, I just want to uh, give a quick, this episode is brought to you by uh, the Yacha Treatment Center, which is why I'm in Thailand at all. They are a, a trauma treatment center specializing in internal family systems, EMDR, eye movement, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, um, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. Um, their program is holistic in nature. They cover everything. I can just tell you, I went through a 30-day, well, it was more like a 35-day treatment at the, um, in the residential treatment program just, just now here in Thailand, and absolutely transformative in so many ways. They have made all the difference in my world. So check them out, guys, at um, Yatra Center. That's C-E-N-T-R-E dot com, not E-R dot com. And uh, for more information, I highly suggest you check them out. So. And Chuck, I got to tell you before you go on, you yeah. look different. Oh, oh, hopefully that's you do. a good thing. You look different, you know, even other, in a good way. Um, but even other people I know who follow um, yeah. have commented to me that you look healthier, you look happier, you look, mm. you know, just, yeah, I less am. anxious, oh. more settled. On, on all counts, I really am. It's awesome. I really am. Right. It could just be the tan. Right, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, but right in this light, I look rather ghostly. But... <laughs> that always helps. Tan always helps. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. <laughs> story, right? Um, Sonia, why don't you just kind of give us a background? Like we were kind of joking, some, look behind the curtain here. We've got to build up credibility with the audience. Like, why is it that, that I want you to come on our podcast? Right? So why don't you give us a bit, a synopsis of your story, if you will. Yeah, I would love to. So I was in active addiction for 20 years and I always love to explain to people that what led me to my addiction was trauma. So in my teenage years, I went through a series of traumatic events. And so when I picked up alcohol and drugs for the first time, it was like, it was the band-aid, but at the time it felt like the solution, right? Like it fixed all my problems. It made me feel better. I didn't experience the pain and I could come out of my shell and be the person I wanted to be. So I loved it. I loved can, it so much. I, I remember you were every single time? thing. Can, can I ask how old you were the first well, time you got messed up? There's like a series of first times. So the first time yeah. I put a substance in my body, I was 11. First time I found my first drug of choice, I was 15. And that right there, like I remember everything about that moment. I'll never forget it. You know, I fell in so love. So tell us how it made you feel. Love. How'd that make you feel? Oh, we fell in love. I guess that states it right oh. there, right? Yeah. Were you self-aware enough to know at the time <laughs> why you fell in love? Like, were, like, did, like it gave me this sense of, no. were you self, no, no. That's always the question I want to get to before I let no. somebody continue on with the rest of their thing is, 
were you self-aware at the time? It's like a 70-30 split. No, right? you know, absolutely not. Answer, right? so, yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I remember everything about it. Like, I remember the way I felt. I remember the way it smelled. I remember who I was with. I remember the way the room looked, like everything. And I had this like massive amount of energy. I was ready to take on the whole world. And I just felt this euphoric overload. Like it was just the best feeling. And I have to say, ever since that first time, I've never had that much of a euphoric experience since. Wow. Right. Chasing that dragon forever and ever. Amen. Right. So, yeah. And this is something, you know, we've talked about many times through this podcast, but, and it's something I notice like talking to patients. When I talk to patients who are, who have addiction, so there's, you know, people who use substances, but they're not addicted to them. When I speak to people though with addiction, their description, right? Um, I mean, Chuck, we've talked about this many times, but mm -hmm. it's, there is that common theme of it being kind of Sonia, like you're describing like this incredible, you know, like I've had people say to me, it was like the heavens opened. I felt good for the first time in my life. Um, hug you know, tends to be that very euphoric. Yeah. 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 All right. So yeah, well, let's move forward from there then. So that, that was your first time. What's uh what happens after that? Yeah. Well, so the people that I was hanging out with, right? When you hang out with people that use drugs, eventually they use other kind of drugs. And so I continued to use drugs on the weekends. Then it became during the week. Then it became every single day. Then I had no uh, ambitions for life, right? I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to go to work. You know, I just wanted to do drugs. And so that's what I continued to do for 20 years. And it didn't really get bad until I would say like the last 10 years, I hit a lot of rock bottoms. Like it just didn't matter how many times I hit the rock bottom. I just kept using, I had no willingness to stop, but then the consequences started to come in my life. And so I've done every single thing you could possibly imagine a person doing for drugs. Like there was no stops. I didn't care who I had to hurt, who I had to screw, who I had to rob. I mean, it just did not matter if it was my mom. Like I've stolen from my mom, you know, I've cheated on my husband. I've done all of the things that I should not do, but in order to get more drugs, I did those things. And so then I started to have consequences, right? I started going to jail. I started going in and out of detox centers. My family wouldn't let me come over to their house. And then eventually it ruined my marriage and I lost my children. And that for me was, that wasn't exactly the turning point, but that's when I didn't want to use anymore, but I used against my own will, right? Every day I would get up and I would tell myself like, today I'm not going to do drugs. Today I'm going to quit. And then every day I would use again. And every night I would hurt somebody or hurt myself again. And so what happened is, is they took custody of my kids away and they gave me a case plan. Like if you stop using drugs and you do X, Y, and Z, then you can get your kids back. And so my husband had some health complications. He had endocarditis as a result of using. And so I just felt like I got to this point where I lost my husband. I had lost my children. I was living with the dope man, you know, using dope every day. And it just got so freaking bad. It was so dark. Like I was with a guy who was like a big, big time drug dealer. And he practiced in the dark arts, like witchcraft. And he was a total like, Mm. 
he was two different people. Like during the day, he would be one person and at night he would be another person. And basically I was like his sex Barbie doll for lack of better words, you know? And, and it was just so traumatic for me. Like when you talk about like the big T and the little T, like that was my big T event. So on top of losing my children and my husband, I was living in this trauma. It literally was evil. Like it literally, I could feel the darkness around me, you know, and I wanted to stop every day, but I didn't know how to. And so what eventually led me to getting clean was the law interfered in my life. It wasn't the first time I had been arrested because I had been arrested many, many other times. But from 2018 until 2019, I went in and out of jail over and over again on the same charges. I kept violating my probation because the terms of my probation were don't use. But guess what? I didn't know how to not use. I didn't have any tools in my toolbox. The only thing that I knew how to do was use and run. And so that's what I did because those were my coping skills. And I really like to express that to people because that was the only thing that I knew that fixed my problems, even if temporarily it made me feel better. It not that it made me feel better. It made me numb, right? Like it made me numb for that, for that day, for that hour. When I used, I didn't experience all of the catastrophe that was happening around me. Right. And so I could run from my problems, but I was also running from the law. (laughs) And so, um, my last arrest was on July 1st of 2019. I overdosed the day before I was arrested. Nobody narcan me. Like I, I, it, by the grace of God, that's the reason I'm alive because I woke up on the floor. The dope man, the guy that I was living with was sitting right next to me. He didn't care if I lived or died. Like he was going to let me die because there had been so many overdoses already called around him that he was more worried about himself than he was me. And so, um, you know, my mom had found out where I was living at and she called Crime Stoppers and reported me for my felony warrants. And so the cops came to pick me up that morning and that started my recovery journey, you know? So wow. I, I found my recovery, my, what I call my gift of desperation in jail. And that's really where things started to change for me. So did you have to go cold turkey in jail then with, without Matt? Without an AMAT? <gasps> Yes, it was freaking awful. No, they offer MAT now in the jail, but when I got clean, they didn't. And so they just like let me kick it on the on the floor in what they call medical, which is where they put all of like the drunk tank, right? Except for yeah. the people that are like drunk, people that are using drugs. They let them all come off the drugs together in a 10 by 10 room with glass walls so that they can see you in case you have a seizure or die, you know, but you're in there with like 12 other women and they're all shitting and puking and sweating and arguing. And it was awful, (laughs) but like, oh, it was so bad. But when I say my gift of desperation, like that's what I'm talking about because I was so spiritually broken at that point in time. I had lost everything. I was in this horrible room. I had no bond. Like I was not getting out of jail this time. I was facing some charges, facing going to prison. Nobody would speak to me. And, you know, I didn't have my one coping skill, right? I didn't have the drugs. And so I was just so spiritually broken. I was desperate. I didn't want to live that way anymore. And the years prior, like I didn't want to continue to use, but I didn't know how to stop. And so I was just at this like, you know, fork in the road, you know, like, do I want to continue living this life or do I want to get my life back. And at that point in time, like I didn't know that was really possible, but I definitely knew that I was tired of living the way that I was living. No kidding. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. That's question that's, for you about the cold turkey. Um, if you could go back now um, and have the option of having been given MAT, would you have taken it? I would have for sure taken it. In a lot of ways, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't offered that, although I will say that I am an advocate for MAT, especially. I think that it saves lives. You know, I mean, if it can give somebody a good enough chance to become stable and a productive member of society and do some of that healing work, it really helps people to be successful in recovery. So I'm a huge advocate for it. However, my story is that I had done MAT prior to that uh, in one of my attempts to get clean. And I, it just, it didn't work for me at the time because I wasn't ready. So honestly, I'm not sure I, if, if I would have been offered it, then I absolutely would have taken it because I went through about a 14 day detox. Um, but I can't say whether I would have been successful or not because I don't know, but I certainly would have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, hopefully I can ask this, but now in your recovery, are you reconnected to your children? I am. So that, so what happened, right? When I was in jail, I was facing going to prison and I had had custody of my kids taken away, but I had what they call case plan where you have to do like certain things to show that you've changed your behavior through the courts and they'll give you your kids back. Right. And so without that arrest, I would have never been able to do the things. And so what happened is, is I was supposed to be going to prison. They had offered me 20 and a half months in prison. That was the offer. I had talked to my public defender. I was going to take it. I get to court the next morning and somebody that advocates for women in the jail showed up in court. Like it was truly like a miracle that this happened. She showed up in court that day and she advocated for me to go to treatment. So instead of going to prison, like I had planned that day, I got a chance to go to treatment. And by the time that that happened, you know, during my time in jail, women would come in and they would share their stories. And so by the time that that happened, I had hope that I believed that maybe I could have what those women had if I was willing to do what they did. And so when I went to treatment, I started learning about myself, learning different coping skills, dealing with the trauma that I had been through. And I also started to be able to work the case plan. And so I went up completing that treatment center. My husband and I reunited in our recovery journey. He got clean two months Mm -hmm. after I got clean. And then we finally brought our family back together when I had about a year clean. And so now I just want to say this because I think all of the stuff that we've been through can um, turn us into the person that we are, right? So today, like what I do for work is I help parents who've lost their kids navigate through the court process to be able to get their kids back. And so I'm just a huge believer that all of our pain can be our purpose. You know, like everything that I have been through has helped somebody else who's going through that same thing. And not only that, it's also helped me, right? Because it's given me that sense of purpose to where I can help somebody else. So it's kind of like this um, domino effect, right? Like you help others, it helps you. Then they help others, it helps them. So it's just really cool how this works. Like once you catch on to it. And so, um, yeah, and here I am. My kids have been home with me for now almost four years, and I'm coming up on five years in recovery, and my life is just, I mean, oh, my God, it's amazing. Like, I never thought that this would ever be possible for a junkie like me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I shot dope. Like, I was an absolutely 
low bottom, like no holds back. Like I was that person, you know, and today I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I think that's like a loaded statement, right? Like I say that, but I mean that like life is good. Doesn't mean life doesn't happen because life happens. Like I've recently had life show up, which I'll tell you guys about later, but you know, just for today, like I don't have to use. And as long as I don't use, Mm. there's hope for a better tomorrow. Like the desire to use has been lifted. That alone is the best miracle that I have found Mm -hmm. in recovery because I never thought that I would be able to get through a day or an hour or a minute without thinking or using a drug. And here we are Mm. today. It's amazing. Do you still struggle like almost five years in? Do you, do you have days, moments, weeks, whatever, where you still crave, you have urges? Does that still happen? Well, sometimes clean time can be our enemy, right? Like the longer that we have clean, like I still have this disease in my brain that lies to me in my own voice and tells me things that are not true, that are dangerous and that I should not do, which is why having a support network is so important. But when I say the obsession or the desire to use has been lifted, what I mean by that is that when I was using all day, all that I thought about was using and getting more drugs. Like everything that I did revolved around that. All my thought processes revolved around that. So that has been lifted to where I'm not Mm. consumed by the thought of using. But sometimes, right, I'm coming up on five years and sometimes I think, was I really an addict? Was I really that bad? Maybe I could just do this and it wouldn't be a big (laughs) deal. Just one time, you know, so I have to like be honest about those thoughts and share those thoughts because, and I have to remember how bad it got because I can't use one time. And I know that about myself. Doesn't mean I don't fucking think about it sometimes though. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's good for people who are listening, who are earlier in recovery to hear about, right? Um, Because I think, you know, I've had people describe for me, you know, addiction is your most patient friend, right? It will sit there quietly forever, you know? Um, Cunning and relentless, right? Cunning, mm -hmm. the demons of addiction, cunning Mm -hmm. and relentless. So, yeah, that's for sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, so much can I ask another there. question? I love that you're doing that right now, Lisa. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> don't like, be. So don't many be. questions. I love it. Um, I love it. Right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how old your kids are. Um, but you know, it sounds like both you and your husband are in recovery. Mm-hmm. Do you like? Do your kids understand um, about your histories, your illnesses? Yeah. So the thing is with mine, right? I have a 13 and a 15 year old. And so I've been clean for four years, right? That means that they have seen the worst of me. Like they've seen me overdose in front of them. They've seen John's coming in and out. They've seen uh, me disappearing to use. They've seen it all. They've seen the paraphernalia. Like they know what addiction is and they know how sick I was and their dad too. Like they watched their dad almost die, you know, so they know the reality of my addiction. They had to live with my mom for several years during my addiction. So they get that. And 
um, now that I'm in recovery, like I choose to be very honest with them about it. Right. I, addiction is a, it's a family disease, right? Like it's a genetic, just they, they are already genetically predisposed to addiction. It runs heavy in our family. And so in my opinion, the only way that I can help them with that is to be entirely honest about the realities of addiction and for them to see my recovery and what we do in our recovery today. And I can tell you that <laughs> it gives my kids comfort to see me working my recovery. Like they they feel safe when they see me doing the things that I have been doing these last couple of years because they know mommy's going to be okay as long as she continues to do those things. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people, you know, kids, um, kids take responsibility for things they have no responsibility over. Um, it's just a natural thing. Kids will blame themselves for things um, and they're smart and they're aware and they notice. And I think the worst thing for a child is, is uncertainty, right? And so it's exactly what you're describing. Like, I think especially when they have seen all the things they've seen, you know, to be open with them at this point is not exposing them to things they're not already aware of. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. Like kids, when they're aware, when they know um, there's no confusion, there's no secrecy, that's what makes a kid feel safe. Right. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. And to, to add to that, because of the things like, I mean, they've experienced their own traumas now, right? That, that could, you know, potentially spiral. So the, the efforts that you're making in front of them, I, that's so great. Right? That's so great. You know, right. I often say to people, mm-hmm. you think what your kids pick up on triplets and you're still short, right? <laughs> and your kids have been exposed to a whole lot. Yeah. Of things, right? so, and I don't yeah, think. Right? And I don't think you do kids favors by trying to make it out like their life is perfect because the reality mm-hmm. is no one's life is perfect, right? Even even if you take addiction out of the picture, nothing is perfect. And so if you hide troubles and challenges from your kids, then when they experience their own challenges in life, they think there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas when you're transparent about struggles, challenges, whatever, then when they face their own, which inevitably they will, um, then they just, they're aware. They're like, this is normal. This is life. You know, everybody goes through this and that helps build their resilience, not, not sheltering them. Right. And, you know, another thing too, is that they have been through their own traumas, right? Like because of what I've done and, and I have to own my part in that. And by owning my part in that, I also have to be, um, open and receptive to their own healing journey because they sometimes stuff comes up for them and I have to allow them to process through that stuff in a safe and loving way. And sometimes, you know, it's my fault and, and that's okay. Like it's my responsibility to help them on their healing journey too. Like when they talk about things, sometimes it hurts my feelings when they bring up things from the past, but you know, I have to allow them to have their process too, because they are resilient and I need to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I need to honor that so that they can find their own path to resiliency Mm -hmm. and healing. Well said. Yeah. Very yeah. well said. And I think it's about recognizing that, you know, well, maybe 
at times it's easy to think that your addiction is sort of central to things. The reality is, is that their own experience is central to them, independent of you and independent of your addiction, right? So it's allowing Mm -hmm. them to walk their journey beside you, um, regardless of whether you can draw parallels or or connections back to your addiction, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing though. They're lucky that they've got you as an example. It's awesome. Hey, before we jump into the next topic here, um, I just, I got to take a mention because we're going to do this without running commercials. We're going to try this out this time. So um, Narcan. Um, Okay. This PSA is brought to you by TWC, Together We Can. It's where Canada goes to recover. They are a a group of treatment facilities and um, they offer all sorts of different things, family therapies, um, detox, um, uh, treatment in general, uh, addiction treatment. Um, their education program is amazing. Um, some of the things they do to try and counter stigma. They're based out of Vancouver, BC, and you can um, check them out at TWC Recovery Life, twcrecoverylife.org. Um, and the PSA is about carrying Narcan. Something we often say is, um, you know, you might not you might not plan to be around opioid use, but you never know when it's going to be around you. Um, you can save a life of somebody who's loved and who loves. So if you can't find Narcan wherever you're at, guys, shoot me an email, podcast at gmail.com. If I can't find it in your area, I'll send you some. Um, just please have it around. Please, please, please carry some. Right? It's, it's, it's just a reality these days. You can really save some lives, right? So, yeah. um, all of this said, I really just want to pick your story apart. Not, not pick it apart, not like that. I just want to hear more. Um, but I did want to talk about... I pick it apart. I don't believe you. <laughs> Jeez. Um, um, <laughs> we're coming up. I definitely nowhere. gave you guys the short and simple version. So <laughs> oh, I know there's there's more to unpack there, and I think maybe there's an opportunity for that in the near future too, Sonia. Um, with Christmas being you know a week away now, we can I guess nine days where you are, a week and eight days where I am, or eight days where I am, nine days where you are. Um. Families are about to navigate some really hard times, and they are navigating some really hard times, right? This show dedicates a huge portion of its content towards the, the loved ones of people who suffer in addiction. And I think it's important that we uh, try and acknowledge some of that and, and you know, maybe help some people get through these times uh, as best we can anyway. So um, what do you even okay, – we'll, we'll go to you first on this one, Sonia. If somebody's mm-hmm. got somebody who's suffering in their life and they want to invite them to Christmas, but they don't want to invite them to Christmas and they don't, what would, what would you even say to somebody like that? Like, you know, and, and I know that's kind of putting you on the spot. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. So, you know, if you have any advice or anything to say to that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I actually just had a friend of mine ask me about that because she has a sister who's in active addiction. And I will tell you that when I was in my addiction, the holidays were some of the hardest times for me because I knew that I was sick. Like I knew I was sick for a very long time, right? Way before I got clean. Um, But they were some of the hardest times for me and they were some of the hardest times for my family. And I'm so grateful that my family still let me come around on the holidays. 
I think that you can do that with love and with boundaries. And I think that's an important part of it. If you're going to, and you know what, everybody has to make their own decisions because you have to make a decision that you're going to be able to live with, right? Whether you choose to, or whether you choose not to, both of those things are okay. So don't, you know, there is no right answer to this, but if you do choose to let one of your family members come over and they are in their active addiction, I think that comes with a set of boundaries, right? I mean, they can come over for a scheduled amount of time, like a family get together or whatnot. And I would say that we don't give them any gift cards or any cash because I know that I used up gift cards and cash for dope when I was in my addiction. Um, And, you know, you just embrace that moment that you have with them because I've spoke to a lot of family members who, you know, we hear this like tough love, tough love, tough love Mm. thing where you have to put them out and you have to put up the walls. And then that person passes away. And you think, damn, I wish that I would have just loved them through this holiday. I wish I would have taken whatever time that I could to spend with them because they're not here anymore. And so it's such a hard thing to navigate through when you have a family member that's in addiction. And again, there is no right or wrong answers, but I'm a firm believer in loving people where they're at with boundaries so that I can still protect myself at the same time. She's our people, Lisa. <laughs> She's our people. Right? <laughs> Just going to say, mic drop. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hey. What about gifts? Yeah. And I know that sounds like such a silly question, but I guarantee you families out there ask that question of themselves. Do we get them a Christmas gift? Do we not get them a Christmas gift? Like, I think that the not giving them money is like... You know, I think families watching this podcast are already at the stage probably of going, I'm not going to give you money because I know where it's going to go. Um, But I think it's tricky because you're like, do I buy them a winter jacket? You know, Um, recognizing that there's a probability that they'll go and sell the jacket and use the money to buy dope. But I'm just curious what you guys think about that. I'll speak to that for a second. Who cares? I don't mean who cares if they buy dope. You're buying them a jacket. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 it can end there, right? If they yeah. sell that jacket, they sell that jacket. If they, they're going to do, if they're going to go get dope, they're going to go get dope anyway. But if you're going to buy your loved one a jacket totally. because it's winter, if you're going to feed your loved one because they're hungry, who cares, right? That, that's it. You're not, mm-hmm. I, I get really pissed off at the enabling conversation when people start talking about the essentials, food jackets things like that mm-hmm. right that that gets me fired up yeah right well i don't want to feed them because they spent mm-hmm. their money on dope and it just enables them no feed your goddamn son right <laughs> like just like just feed them because it's a hungry human being mm-hmm. how about just they're a human and then they're somebody who mm-hmm. suffers an addiction right right so um that gets me fired up. that's just my yeah. thoughts on it what so do I mean, you think sonia yeah No, I actually completely agree. I mean, when it comes to essentials, and I talk to family members every single day, like from my social media, I have desperate family members reach out to me all the time. And I I am a firm believer, if your family member or loved one or friend or whatever they are is hungry, feed them. 
if they need yeah. a shower, let them take a shower. Like those are basic human rights. You know, if you want to get them a jacket because it's cold or you want to get them boots because they have, you know, I mean, those are really important things to have on the streets. And there is a small probability that they might sell it. But it, again, like it doesn't matter, you know, like it is the thought and the love and the gift that counts. And I can tell you when I was on the streets, I felt like a less than human being. Like I literally felt like the scum of the freaking earth. And so just having somebody that's like, hey, you know, I know it's rough out there. I can't give you any money, but here's some clothes. I hope that this helps you. That makes a huge statement. It goes beyond just the material item. It says, hey, yep. I love you no matter where you're at right now. I still love you. Yeah, right, mm. right. Well said, yeah. really well said. I totally okay. appreciate that. Now, the question, though, is like, where does it stop, though? Because on the other hand, Sonia, like you talk about that in your recovery journey, you got to this place of desperation, right? So, you know, like, do we house people, feed people? Because there is a part of me that says, well, when they're housed and they're fed, then they have more disposable income to continue living in the life. You're going to make them comfortable, right? Like I've had people say that to me before, like I'm not gonna give you a warm bed to kill yourself in. And so it's like, I think as a family member, there's part of you that wants to help get them to a place of desperation so that hopefully they'll seek help. But recognizing that desperation and meeting basic needs don't always ex coexist. And so where's, where's the line? I personally think that letting somebody live at your house is not a great idea because um, it does give them, I don't know. I don't know if more resources is the right word to say, but when I was living at my mom's house, I used in my mom's house behind her back, whether she wanted me to do it or not. And I made that house unsafe for many reasons. I had drug dealers coming by there. I mean, I was, I was stealing from her. I stole her guns. I stole her jewelry. I mean, anything of value, I stole it when she wasn't there. And so that's why I say like, I don't think that letting them live in your house is a good idea. But with that being said, I do think that as family members, what we can do is we can become aware of the resources in the community, right? There's a lot of homeless shelters. There's a lot of halfway houses. There's a lot of treatment centers. And if we know those things, we can say, hey, listen, I'm not going to let you stay at my house while you're using, but I do know somewhere that you can go. And if you want me to take you there, I will. And either way it goes, whether you let them in your house or you don't, if they're in addiction, there is still a risk that they may not come back. So I think at the end of the day, like we just have to make the decisions that we can live with, but we don't want to enable their addiction. And you're right. Those things coexist, right? And it's so hard to make those choices because when we love an addict, sometimes our love can be harmful and not helpful. So it's really tough. Yeah. Well do you, said, do you sort of see that, Chuck? Because I know you're like, uh, I know that, that Chuck, you've been, you've always been vocal about that. And I totally appreciate that. You know, it's like, um, and I mean, with my brother, like, you know, even when my brother was homeless, I would go see him and take him grocery shopping, you know, and we would yeah. buy all the <laughs> things that didn't require a fridge. Um, but like I said, while it's easy to kind of make isolated statements about that sort of stuff, I also very much appreciate that for a family, there's still this big question mark around at what point 
am I making you too comfortable and preventing you from getting to that place of desperation that ultimately is going to hopefully motivate you to go and actually get the help you need and get better? You know, if I think I really like what Sonia just said to that about being aware of the resources available in the community, right? Because there's a progression. And so for myself, yeah, when I was in addiction, you know, if, if in, I, my case was different because I just completely stayed away from my family for years. Right. So I, I, they, I, we didn't have to navigate these waters together like that. Um, and when mm -hmm. I did, mom started a, a campaign, the you are loved campaign, I'll call it with me, which is, which was so important. Right. And it starts there. It starts there and then it's, Hey, you know what? There's, there's resources in the community. It, a detox program, most detoxes like you have to call into, you know, to, to get your bed. You can have someone call in every second day for you. So do that for that person. Call in every, you know, be that person for them so that they, you know, they don't have to try and meet this seemingly impossible thing of calling somewhere every day at a certain time. Seems easy to us all sitting here now, but let me tell you when you're in it, right? <laughs> making a phone yeah. call once every 24 hours can be really challenging to do, right? So you yes. help them with that help them with the resources. And then there's a yeah. progression as somebody begins to move through the process of recovery that they can kind of earn more stuff back, right? But something yes, I have totally. said a thousand times and I will say a thousand more times, the perceived lack of connection, perceived lack of connection was the boot on my neck for the last two years of active addiction, right? It wasn't that yeah. I wasn't loved. It was that I thought I wasn't loved. Worse is that I thought mm -hmm. I wasn't lovable, right? And mm -hmm. so if you can help somebody do that, and then start to work through the process. You'd be amazed at how many people start to work through that process, right? And, and, and get to a mm -hmm. better place, right? By, by having that connection on their side, yeah. right? So, um, yeah. You know, that's yeah. one thing that Sonia, I always did with my brother is I would text my brother almost daily. Tell him I loved him. I'm here. I will help you, you know? And then you have to hope that at some point, you know, they reach out for help, but yeah. yeah. Now, Chris, do you feel like if somebody is reaching out and telling you that you're loved on the daily, that that helps? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. I can tell you the shift. Because when some of it's internal though, that, right? There's that. Well, yeah, yeah. You just, you don't feel loved, right? I, the shift. It, and it, it was, for me, it was relatively quick. You know, it was, it was probably, what was the last year that mom started doing that? And a year is a long time, but mm. when you've been in it for 20 some odd years, a year is pretty quick too, right? But the shift for me when she started letting me know I was loved, right? It, it took a while to kick in and there's days I was like, fuck me or whatever. But <laughs> it really did start to make a difference, right? You know, and, and Lisa, you were, you, we did that episode yeah. with mom about three weeks ago now, right? Two weeks ago, three, three weeks ago. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She explained the words you are loved instead of I love you. Like and why she came up. And I know. Sonia, my mom. I've thought about that so own. many times. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, my mom has her own fanfare as a result of the show. Right? She there is mothers that, that <laughs> yeah. rely on her, that that contact her quite often. Um, she's been on with us a few times now. So she's Mama Norma. You, <laughs> she is, right. Um so I'll yeah. speak to the you are love message first um, and, and like how it became a thing with us. 
it was kind of like out of nowhere, no matter how erratic the conversations were, and you know the conversations I'm talking about, how crazy that shit gets, right? When you're talking to your family, it would end with you are loved. Yeah. And often I would read that and go, right? And, but it always ended with you are loved. And then randomly, I would get these you are loved messages. And at, when, I was, when I got to that point, that desperation, right? Um, the first time, the first time I ever tried recovery was two years ago between Christmas and New Year's. It's the first time I ever took a stab at it. It took me a year of relapsing up and down, you know, it's never a linear path, right? But um, the first time I did that and I, and I messaged my mom and said, please come get me, you know, and she did, right? And it was just the idea that, that, that I was loved was just so profound to me in the moment. It really was, right? So, um, yeah, they came and got me, and fuck, it was crazy. This is what I'll, tell you. I'll tell you about where daily gratitudes come from now, too, then. I, in that conversation, we're on our way back. She picks us up. We talked about this in that episode, too, eh, Lisa, right? The fucking burger. Uh, so they, her and a couple friends come in and see. <laughs> yeah. They live about half an hour away. They come and they pick me up, me and my stuff. They've already got an apartment set up for me. Okay, they already have an apartment for me. It's not set up or anything. It was like this barren-ass apartment, whatever. It was safe. It was warm. It was safe. <laughs> and at mm-hmm. the time, PTSD had completely taken me over. I was, I was a train wreck at that point. Half a version of the man yeah. I was. And we're on our way. So we stop and we get this burger. We stopped at Burger King. And my mom, her words were, I snorted it. Like, she was just like this poor human. Like, I just like, ah, right? So this is our first real meal in days, maybe weeks that I've had. And she's like, and you got to keep track of daily gratitudes. And I'm like sensory overload. My whole world just changed. I'm in a vehicle with my mom, these two people I don't know. I'm on my way back to this other town where they've got an apartment for me. I'm like, what the fuck is going on right now? You know? And I'm still just coming down. You know, off, off my latest high. And my mom's like, okay, you got to practice daily gratitudes. And you got to, I'm like, I'm really thankful for this burger, but I wish you'd just shut the fuck up right now. Right. Like, I, I never said that to her, but that's what I was thinking. Right. Like, I just like, could you please just shut up? Like, can I just enjoy my fucking burger, please? You know? And a couple times later, she's picking me up again and she basically hit me with this journal and said, you're taking track of your daily gratitude. Okay. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and from then on, it's when I really started with that and it's become an integral part of my journey now. And as such, the show, you know, we've done daily gratitudes in every show and, so, and the You Are Love message in every show. Why she chose You Are Love. And I'd never heard this before Lisa heard it with me a couple weeks ago on the show. When you say I love you to somebody who's being erratic, they can say, well, no, you don't, because if you loved me, you would. If you, you know, if you say you are loved, it speaks to more than just me. It's the people, you are loved. It's everybody loves you. And it takes away that, no, you don't thing, because how can you say that, right? Like it's a, even, even in an addict's brain, it's like, you can't say that. So, and oh, I was, even to somebody who's suffering an addiction, we try not to use the word addict too much in the show, right? <laughs> you know, right. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's a hot spot for Lisa and we respect that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, and that's why but she it's chose true the Because the thing like, is, is that, yeah. And, and I think it's that, you know, each of us, right. We're loved by so many people. It's mm-hmm. not just, I love you, right. It's yeah. the world loves you. 
you know, friends love you, extended family loves you. And it sort of captures that, I think. Um, And it it makes it bigger. To me, you are loved is bigger than I love you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. And I can tell you that an addict does not feel, uh, uh, somebody who's using and substance misuse (laughs) does not (laughs) feel loved when they are out there. And I just know from my own personal experiences, I will never forget the people that didn't give up on me and the people that did give up on me. And I had to do a lot of intentional healing work to mend those relationships. I mean, uh, not even what they, what I did or what, I did to them, but the way that they gave up on me, like you gave Mm. up on me, you know, and it hurts so bad. And then to try to mend those relationships, to have that, even if it's just that one person, right? That one person that believes in you and reminds you every day that you are loved and you are human and this is not the end makes an incredible difference. Right. Mm. Right. And that you're deserving. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you deserve to feel peace, Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that for me, like, you know, physician hat on, that is one of the things I find powerful about educating families about the disease aspect of addiction is that I think families give up less yeah. when they understand this is a disease. You know, it's like, would you walk away from your loved one if they were battling cancer? Right. Fuck no. 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 I love it when Lisa swears. And why would you walk away from them? (laughs) (laughs) But then why would you walk away when they battle addiction? (laughs) We'll just pause for a moment. (laughs) Um, But do you know what I mean? Like, when you can really hone in on the fact that you know, their shitty decisions in these moments are because their brain is not working. You know, we can image their brain and show you their brain is not working. Um, and it's really difficult because, you know, obviously someone who's suffering with cancer, they don't tend to make decisions that are as hurtful to their family members as someone who's suffering an addiction. But when people are educated about the fact that their frontal lobe is turned off, I think it makes families more compassionate and empathetic. And again, it's that whole thing. Yes, you are entitled to boundaries to protect yourself. Um, But to me, it helps people not give up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It really does. It really does. I actually, mm-hmm. before yeah. we started recording, I Lisa, agree I, with that. Oh, go ahead. Um, before we started recording, well, Lisa, I was, I was just thinking like, sorry. <laughs> There's a bit of a delay because I'm in Thailand with us and great internet. So that's going to happen. Okay. Um, I, I was just, I was, I was telling Lisa the vote. I, I played your quote about choices for Sonia before we started the episode or before you, before you, oh. came on, right. Yeah. So. You know what? Maybe I'm going to play that again real quick now yeah. that I mentioned it, and then and then I'm going to let you make your point. Okay, Sonia, is that does that work? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to try and yeah. play it sometimes. I love that. Yeah, let's play it. All right. I love that was- so much, and I right. love the way that you said it because that we do right. I was just sharing right before we got on here, like 
we all make those choices when we're younger. And for me, I felt like using drugs and alcohol was a rite of passage. Like we all go through this phase is what I thought it was, mm -hmm. but the phase never ended. And by the time that I realized I had a problem, it was too late to stop. I didn't have the ability to stop. And so I can't stand when people say, oh, they used, they deserved it. I've heard some really nasty things from people on my social media pages, the way that they talk about people that have maybe overdosed or, you know, and it's not a choice. Nobody decides that they want to become an addict and lose everything and wind up on the streets. Nobody makes that decision, but you find yourself there and it's too late to turn around by the time that it happens. Right, right. Well said. Totally. Yeah, yeah. right. So, um, what was the point you were going to make there, Sonia, before I cut you off? I, that was like five minutes ago now, so who knows, right? But, uh, <laughs> I know. That's I was okay. like, uh, if you remember this, I'm going to be very impressed with you. <laughs> I actually right. do. Um, <laughs> oh, there you go. She's you know, it's like when we're talking like about. 20 things could have happened since then. So, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like when we talk about being worthy, right? I'm glad that I was arrested. And I tell people this all the time. Like I've heard people say, you can only get sober for you. It's not going to work if you don't do it for you. Well, that was not my experience. I couldn't do it for me. And the reason I couldn't do it for me is because I didn't think I was worthy of it. I didn't love myself. I didn't think I deserved it. I thought I was a POS, right? A piece of shit. And so I didn't think I deserved a life of recovery. So I'm glad that I got arrested because I had all this accountability over my head. Like I was going to go to prison. If I messed up, I was going to lose my kids. If I messed up, I had all these things, external things, right, that helped me to stay sober. And, and what happened is, is over the time period that I had all this accountability, I did do the work and I did work on my trauma and I did learn new tools. And through that process, I learned to love myself because other people around me gave me and showed me love, but I would have never been able to just do it on my own because I didn't have the capacity or the love for myself to believe that I should. Oh, Lisa, look at that. Can you see <laughs> this right here? <laughs> just like... Go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> Two run things with it. for me. So one of them, one of them is, um, it made me think of, there's a friend of Chuck's who he had reached out to me about in Calgary and, you know, living an active addiction, again, tons of consequences, finding herself homeless. And we talked about her coming into the hospital when I was on call, that I could see her, I could admit her to hospital, we could try to get her you know, addiction supports, try to get her connected to treatment programs, etc. Now, as a psychiatrist, when I'm in the emergency department, we have to be consulted. So when you come into the eMERGE, you're seen by an emergency doctor, that's your doctor in the eMERGE. Now, if you can convince them, or if you present in a way that they feel you need psychiatric help, then they'll call me. So I knew this person was in the emergency department and I had notified our nurses to keep an eye out that, you know, we were going to need to get involved in this case. And so they reached out to the emergency physician who had signed up and said, hey, like, we're aware of this person in the department. You know, we anticipate we need to get involved. Just let us know once they're medically clear. So then he called back, asked to speak to me and said, um, you know, I, I think that they're dischargeable. Like, do you really want to see them? 
and I was like, yeah, like from what I know about this case, like I don't think they're safe for discharge. Like I think I should see them. So then he's describing for me what, what the patient had told him, which was, yeah, no, I'm fine. I've got somewhere to stay. Like it's no issue. Like I'll be okay. Very much a case that as an emergency physician, he would just discharge. So I said to him, can you just consult me? Like, let me go and speak with her. So I went to speak to her. Um, and what just reminded me of this is that, you know, she and I were talking and she also didn't remember this conversation. So capacity will shelf that for a minute. But, you know, she later told Chuck, well, I don't think that she came to see me. And I was like, nope, <laughs> <We had a laughs> full conversation. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I said to her at one point, I said, you know, you deserve this bed, right? Like I said, as much as any person in this city, you deserve to sit in that bed and you deserve our help. And she burst into tears. And it just spoke to me that there's so much shame that I think, you know, you have that emergency doctor there talking to you that I think there are people who will downplay where they're at because they're ashamed of it. And I don't think she felt worthy of holding that bed and us spending our time and our energy and our resources on her. Right? So there's the worth piece. Um, But also, you know, something, I don't know how many of these episodes, Sonia, that you've watched, but we, we have talked many times about the idea of mandated treatment. Um, you know, there are people who are, who've been on the show who are very opposed to mandated treatment. I am very pro mandated treatment and I know not everyone agrees with me and that's okay. Um, but I'm very pro mandated treatment. And as I've said, I don't mean I'm going to go get a van and drive around and throw everybody who uses drugs in the van and lock them away. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but you kind of just spoke to that, you know, in a way what you're describing was, and again, you're coming at it from a place of worthiness, which I think is maybe something we haven't heard quite so explicitly with other people, but whether it's capacity, whether it's feeling deserving, whether it's believing you can even do it, um, there's all these reasons why, again, I think for some people, I think mandated treatment um, is a good thing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. I wouldn't be here today if it were not for mandated treatment. Right, right. You know, in that particular case, I love her particular case that that we're discussing. um, I'd known her for for 20 years, Um, her technically still husband, but but separated husband for for years. Um, And I have been friends for the better part of 30 years. And we met at the hospital that day you know, um, with him and, and his mom and her and myself. And we sat there for hours and hours going because she was downplaying her situation. She was sabotaging this effort that we were all making to, to get her help. And then f- five days later, five days later, I, I talked to her on the phone. Said, How you doing? And she started talking and I just started bawling. She was a totally different person given the opportunity to have some time to just not be all consumed with getting high and being sick, like all of those things, right? 
and some time just to, to reset. She went from not even like her back was covered. And I mean, covered in bruises. When I saw them in the hospital parking lot, I just like, (gasps) (laughs) this old me came back and I was like, I'm going to go kick this guy's door in. Like, what the, like, you know, and I'm, I'm not that person anymore, but like, like, and, and she was so out of it and just like, fuck, she was just completely downplaying her situation and sabotaging her efforts. And then I talked to her and she's like, okay, well, there's no point in talking to this nursing, like this, this shift, because they're about to go off for the weekend. And I don't want to, you know, they've already helped me with some of this stuff. But when tomorrow's shift comes on, we're going to talk to them about getting a bed. And we're going to, I was like, how, where'd you come from? And it was just like, oh my God, you're this, you're this woman I knew like 15 years ago. And it just, it melted my heart, right? Mandated treatment. There's no way she would have stuck there had we not. And because we were like, no, here's the deal. <laughs> You're staying, right? You're going to need to say whatever you need to stay, say to stay because you don't have anywhere else to go. You can't come here. You can't go there. You, you, you're fucking staying here, right? You don't know what this is happening. And she finally accepted that reality. And then we, you know, it took some more fighting to get her stay. It was like a, you know, every 24 hours we had to reignite the fight kind of thing. But um, eventually on day five, yeah we saw a whole new person, right? A whole new person. And that's that, yeah, that'll forever remain in my heart that, that you did that with us, Lisa. That was a big deal. Right? So, well, and I yeah. think part of it is not believing you can do it. Part of it is feeling you're not worth it. And the other thing is that you have this active brain disease that kind of wants you to go use, you know, there's that kinda, part of you, kinda, you know, I always say it's right? your true self that's <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's like right? your true self is in there trying to fight out. Yeah. But then you've still got, you know, this fully alive addiction. And so even though part of you wants help, you know, because I think that's also a misconception that I see with families and even within, I would say, the medical community who don't have ex- personal experience with addiction or don't work regularly in the field is that, well, they, they come in, they help seek on arrival. They show up and they say, look, I need help. Please let me in. And what will happen is 24 hours later, they want to leave. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they wanted help, but they don't want help anymore. And it's like, that's because they're craving. Like two hours from now, they're going to want help again. So don't let them leave. You know, so it's like that battle and that battle goes on, you know, in those early days, Um, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've had patients ask me to certify them under the mental health act so that they can't leave because they're like, I know in two hours, I'm going to want to use, please certify me so I can't go anywhere, you know, but again, if you don't understand the disease, then as a medical professional, you're like, oh, well, they, they, they're fine. They said they're fine. They don't want to be here anymore. And it's like, yeah, but you're not speaking to the person. You're speaking to their addiction right now. That's who's talking. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I agree with that. I tell people all the time when I talk to family members, and I think what you just said is super important for people to understand. When you're talking to somebody who's using or has recently used and they're wanting to go back to using, you are talking to the diseased part of their brain that is completely under control of the addiction, right? Because the per all, it's like when somebody finds recovery, 
recovery, you literally see the lights come on in their eyes, right? That shell of a person that they were, where they were just like hollowed out, you see the lights coming back on. That is because they are coming back and they are regaining control of their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors. But when they are in it or freshly out of it, they are still under control. So they might say nasty things. They might yell or cuss at you. They might want to go back to the using. They might, you know, we go through so much stuff in that time period. So it's really important to separate the addiction from the person because the person is not the addiction. Totally. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Um, I feel like Sonia is my soul sister. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Fired well, up. Things worked out the way they did then. Yes. We had a totally different plan for this episode yeah. this week and things kind of went differently and well, meant to be, I suppose, right? Meant to be, I suppose. So. Yeah. Um, as much as I would love to sit here and talk all night, um, I do have, <laughs> these, these are a real grind for me. Saturdays are, right? So um, the thing is, Sonia, is yeah. I will now, once we're done with this, plan is to have it out in a couple hours the episode like done and complete right so and of course it, it's a crazy <laughs> that's a grind seriously <laughs> last week i worked for actually what is the time is it there 1 30 1 30 in the morning here now yeah yeah right so and then four hours i have to yeah. i have to record with danny i get to record with danny i shouldn't say i have to i get to record with danny um danny what's what's his last mm-hmm. name do we, we know who we're talking about right sonia I can't, I can't shannon his last name Danny Shannon. Danny that's Shannon, the Australian. Yeah, yeah right. Wait Danny Shannon, the Australian. Yeah. I like it. His, his energy is <laughs> yeah. crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a lot of fun. So I'm um, really looking forward to that. Right? I have to just say that what you just said just the, a moment ago just made me think of Carl. Carl, the atheist, who you know <laughs> used to co-host um, this episode before me. But that was him, wasn't it? Wasn't it him who used to say, change your have tos with get tos yeah 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 it it came from a guest that i'm not really a big fan of these days right but he's the one that that used to remind (laughs) every time if you said have to he'd be like "Uh ah you get to right you don't have to take out the garbage you get to right you know right like how different Mm -hmm. sonia you can relate you know how different is that from five Mm -hmm. years ago for you right you know i know myself Mm -hmm. i I was sweeping up today dog hair fucking dog shit and i'm like Nice. I am like sweeping dog hair in my own place for the first time in years. And That's right. I'm in Thailand doing it. And I'm like, and like, this is what do I, this is a have to if there ever was, right? You know, or a get to if <laughs> yeah. there ever was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm a little shedding bastard that he is. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. Sunny has brought more joy and happiness to my life in four days than. I could have ever thought possible. Right? So, yeah. The uh, world would be a better place if it was full of dogs. It really would. Mm-hmm. Well, Thailand's full of dogs, and I got to say, it's a better place. You can call this a developing <laughs> nation all you want, but like, cost of living's low. People are pretty damn peaceful and easy to get along with. I mean, there's fighting roosters next door, so maybe not that so much. <laughs> right? What, what's, what started out to be like this crazy kind of cool alarm clock turned into fighting cocks. So look at that. Uh. <laughs> said it's right <laughs> it's not even said it. it's not even foul language no mm. nothing, nothing right oh come on i thought i'd get a groan for that one at least oh, oh it takes me a minute it just registered yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> <All right. Dude. laughs> i know Jesus Christ. and, it, and right. it's not 1 30 in the morning here but 
clearly I, I was with Sonia on the on the uptake of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't say it with intent. It wasn't until I was out of my mouth that I was like, oh, hey. Right. <laughs> It took me almost as long as you guys to get that one. So, yeah, yeah, right. You know what? I'm going to tell you one more great dad joke just because. This one. I get Where these texted to me at random. It's, it's marvelous. <laughs> Where do rainbows go when they're bad? Where do who go? Rainbows. Where do rainbows go when they're bad? Prism. Prism. <laughs> it's a light sentence, but they have time to reflect. <laughs> it just keeps going. It's yeah. a joke that just keeps giving. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, listen, um, awesome. that takes me to my favorite part of the show, and that is the Daily Gratitudes. And the Daily Gratitudes are brought to you by Revolution Recovery. Um, they are a recovery house in Surrey, BC, Canada. Guys, check them out. Last I heard, they still had some empty beds, which is a rare occasion. Um, you can go to our show notes for the website because I can't remember it offhand right now. So, <laughs> right. Um, what you got for daily gratitudes today, Sonia? Well, I actually am very grateful today. And as we were talking, you know, like even when you're in recovery, life shows up and sometimes you go through hard things. And this month I've been going through a hard thing. And the hard thing that I've been going through is that I found a lump in my breast. And so I've been in this like waiting period to find out if it's cancer. I had to do a biopsy, a mammogram, an ultrasound, all this like uncomfortable stuff. And I found out yesterday that it's not cancer. So that is my okay. gratitude. And on top of that, I'm also oh. very grateful for asking for help and for all of the people that have shown up and loved me and supported me and shared their experiences through this. Like, I don't have to do anything alone today. Like, I get to, right, be loved and supported and allow people to love me when I'm going through hard times. So I'm very, very grateful for that today. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Mm, I love that. I'm very happy Lisa? to hear that it's not anything bad. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. in the fights. So, yeah. 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 Lisa, what do you got for us? Um, I am grateful for family. Um, you know, I wasn't here last weekend. I got to go to Disneyland with my husband and my six-year-old. Um, and it was just, I mean, obviously very privileged to get to do that. But to be able to go to Disneyland and see Disneyland through the eyes of a six-year-old, um, you know, just the wonder of it, the magic of it, um, it was just so awesome. And I'm grateful that I got to do that and also grateful that I'm in a position that I get to give that to my daughter, um, those experiences and those opportunities. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just, it was magical. It was awesome. 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 I've been following that along on your pictures on Facebook there. And I, yeah, it makes my heart happy to see you guys experiencing that the way that you have for sure. So, um, myself, I am thankful to Sunny. I'm thankful for Sunny for, I mean, for him running away today, you know, because it's just like, it just makes you realize how much I love this little fucker. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I do. I just, I love him so much already. And just that the idea that I've got someone here, someone that's a, he's someone to me right now. In that, in, in my house in Thailand, I'm, you know, I'm halfway around the world from everybody I've ever known and I got Sunny. So, you know, that makes me happy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm also very, very thankful to every single person who continues to watch, listen and support you guys. Uh, 
like, comment, share, hit the subscribe buttons, do all the things, you know what to do. Um, every time you do any one of these things, you're getting me a little bit closer to living my best life. My best life is to continue making a humble living, spreading the message. The message is this. If you're in active addiction right now, today could be the day. Today could be the day that you start a lifelong journey. Reach out to a friend, reach out to a family member, call into detox, go to a meeting. I don't really give a shit. Do whatever it is you got to do to get that journey started because it is so much better than the alternative. And if you have a loved one who's suffering an addiction right now, you're just taking the time to listen to our conversation. If you could just take one more minute out of your day and text that person, let them know they're loved. Use the words. You, you are, are loved. loved. That little glimmer of hope just might be the thing that brings them back.